Where did I put my Bible? If you want to open up your Bibles to Malachi, we are looking uh, this morning at the sudden movement of God. The sudden movement of God. We're actually going to be going to Mark, so if you also want to put your thumb in Mark chapter 1. Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. Says this. Behold, I will send you, verse 5, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, last book of the New Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so this prophet Malachi says that he's going to send someone who is going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. There's going to be a restoration, he's saying, in the home. And after Malachi gets done prophesying this, if you notice, the next page of your Bible, if you just look down for just a second, the next page of your Bible is probably blank. And the reason that it's blank is because there was not a prophet in a canonical sense, that is, a prophet that spoke the Word of God that we have in Scripture for more than 400 years. In fact, uh, some people call this the 400 silent years. So Malachi prophesies, and then over 400 years, the Jews felt that God was silent. There was no major prophet, there was no minor prophet, that is, there was no scripture being written during these days for a long time, for centuries. And it's interesting to think about the fact that for all these years, God was not speaking in the biblical sense, and yet he was still working. He was still at work. Even though there were no prophets in the land, even though no one was speaking with the authority of God in terms of scripture, God is always working, even in times when we feel like he's not at work. In what people would consider spiritually dead times, or times when it doesn't seem like God is working, he is always working, he's even working in the ordinary. And sometimes it's easy to think of God just working in big ways, and we forget that God is also working in the mundane of life the regular things of life. In fact, uh, even though Israel is not the church, God works in the church in much the same way, in ordinary ways. Uh, we come to church on Sunday morning and we sing and we praise God and we pray. And we ask the Lord that he would bless our time. We can sense his presence here. We hear the word of God preached, but uh, overall it's pretty ordinary. 
And after the service, we go home to just kind of cycle through the whole thing again. The next Sunday, we all show up again. We hear the word of God again. Our lives are pretty regular, pretty normal. And that's the way that God works. And we need to understand that. That God isn't always working in these huge, miraculous, cataclysmic type ways. But he's working in the everyday and in the regular. He's working in the ordinary. I love what uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He said, uh, there are not only the great experiences, but also the ordinary. Everyday experiences. And a church that is always praying for a continual revival is a church that has not understood her mission. He says that a church that's just praying for this continuous revival, just always in a state of revival, he said that's not going to happen. And he's not saying here, don't pray for revival. In fact, we need to beseech God for revival. And on Tuesday nights and throughout the week uh, in this church, we're praying, oh, God, send revival. But to think that the church is just going to be in this perpetual statement of excitement of revival is simply not the case. He goes on to say that the church is not meant always to be in a state of revival, but is also to do ordinary, everyday work. But some remember this fact so well that they forget that the church is meant to have special occasions. What is he saying here? He's saying that sometimes we've become so accustomed to the normal, that we've become so accustomed to the, us the usual that we forget that God also works in the unusual and in the spectacular. And there needs to be a sense in our hearts that it's not just God works in the normal and the everyday, but there needs to be an expectancy in our hearts that also says, God, not only do you work in the normal and the everyday and the usual, but God, the truth is we are dry. God, the truth is that we have come to a place where we've just come to expect the normal. Lord, we've forgotten that you also work in the unusual. The Lord, you also do bring revival that you also at times in history have come in great power. And there's a great need in the church today, not just in City Light Church, but also abroad. There's a, there's a great need for us to be awakened to the fact that God wants to work in the spectacular. That it's not just always the ordinary that there have been times in history when God comes in such great power and such great persuasion and such great movement that there is a sense of awe among all. In the early church, we see this, that when the power of God fell on the place, it wasn't just people said, well, we had a great service and we went home. It was there was a sense that God was mightily at work, moving in a powerful and profound way. And we've come to a point in the church's history in America where we have become so accustomed to just going through the regular cycle of things that we have forgotten that God wants to intervene and he wants to move in great and profound power. That's what we need. That's what we need in this church. We, we don't need another dry and dead sermon. We, we don't need another service of where it's just come in. 
What we need in this church, what each person needs here that's sitting here, is a profound encounter that God is the true living God who's still at work in people's lives today. We need people to actually experience the power of the Holy Spirit. See, what happens is, is when churches just continually just go through the regular cycle of the ordinary, all of a sudden people forget that God actually works. And a generation comes where they say, we knew the power of God. We've actually experienced the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. But then the next generation comes after them. And mom and dad are saying, listen, you come to church, and little Joey and little Sally are growing up in church. They say, all this is good, but they're not really experiencing anything. It's just the regular, just going to church. And they turn 18, and they're looking at their watch, and they're going, well, I don't, I don't know. The, this whole church thing, it's good. It, I guess it's good as far as having a moral experience or something, maybe teach us the good morals of how to live or something like that. But uh, really, I can do that at home. I, I can try to live a decent life. I don't need to go to church. And if you notice, our church buildings have become increasingly empty. I was listening recently to a preacher talking about the dozens upon dozens of churches in the Chicago area that are now empty. They're simply relics to the past. We've had churches in this area. You can go visit great cathedrals of places that at once were packed and are now sitting empty or have 10 to 15 people in them. What's, what's wrong? What, what, what is happening? Well, what's happening is people are not experiencing God. In church, when it's just a bunch of set of rules, when it's just a bunch of do this and don't do that, when it's just a bunch of morals, over time it becomes dreadfully boring and nobody wants to come and nobody should want to come. And so we need to recognize that even though God is at work in the ordinary, in the everyday life, there are times when he breaks in to reawaken his people and say, listen, I am still at work. I'm still working in the prophetic. I'm still working in the profoundly powerful. And that's exactly what we see here in Scripture. There's 400 years of silence. There are still people who are waiting for the coming Messiah. We see that in the life of Simeon. We see that in the life of Anna. But many people had spiritually fallen asleep. Many people had said, well, this whole thing is good. I mean, I guess we'll just keep this thing going, but uh, I don't know why. Year after year, it's just the same thing. Nothing seems to be happening. Where is God? Where is he really? That's the question. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning, you're asking that. Maybe you've heard about God, but the, the question this morning is, have you really ever experienced him? Have you actually come into an encounter with him? And it's wonderful as a Christian to come through the doors of the church and to be fed the word of God week after week. There are times when we need a refreshing. There are times when we need a fresh, powerful encounter with the fact that God is still at work. And if you go over to the book of Mark, this is exactly what happens. Mark uh, chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, uh, Mark chapter 1.
says this, verse 4, Mark chapter 1, verse 4. John appeared. John appeared. You think about that. After 400 years, Malachi, the last prophet to speak, all of a sudden, here comes a man named John, and he comes suddenly. Here he is, proclaiming that the Messiah was about to come. God all of a sudden moves suddenly. And what is so wonderful about this is he didn't need the people's preparation. He didn't need people's formulas. He didn't need people to say, we're going to plan a revival from June, uh, June 15th through June 20th. We're going to have a revival, and God's going to show up then. We have a country, a nation that for the most part has become spiritually sleepy. And all of a sudden, even though they were not ready, even though they were not spiritually awake, John appears. God sends his messenger at the appointed time, even without their help. And there are times in history when God all of a sudden shows up by sending his men to preach his word, and they do it suddenly. It's not that people are saying, listen, we need to organize this, or if we sing these three songs, these are really spirit-moving songs. If we sing these three songs, then the Holy Spirit will show up and move. Or if we, if, we, if we come up with a sermon that has these three points, then somehow the Spirit will automatically be inclined to come up and move. And what we see here is the fact that God is sovereign. And, and we should love that. We, we should love the fact that God is not just based upon what we do. Like, let's work something up. Let's keep working this thing up. And if we keep working this thing up, then somehow God will finally be so worn down with our prayers that he'll finally say, okay, I give up, I'll finally show up. I'm reminded of the prophets of Baal, if you remember the prophets of Baal. They're wearing themselves out as they run around their altar. They're trying to get Baal to move. Baal's doing nothing. And Elijah's sitting there, he's making fun of them. He says, hey, maybe your God is, uh, maybe he went to the restroom or maybe he's taking a nap. They're, they're gashing themselves, they're bleeding. They're just wearing themselves out, trying to get through this thing. Oh, God, move, Baal, move, and Baal's doing nothing. And then Elijah comes and he says, make this altar, and he has them soak it over and over and over again. There's no wearing himself out. There's no formula. There's no saying, if we do this, maybe we need a bazaar. That's what we need to get God to move. Maybe we need a festival. If we only have a festival, then we'll get the people into the church doors, and then they'll like us, and then they'll want to come to church, and people are coming to our festivals, and they're coming to our carnivals, and they're going, these things are so lame. I'd rather go to Six Flags. And uh, maybe, maybe what we do is we cook a ham dinner. 
and we have a ham dinner and we sell raffle tickets, that will get the people to get involved and that will get the people to like church. And they come and they eat and they have lots of funnel cake and they dunk people in dunk tanks and all sorts of things. They have fun on a Saturday night and Sunday morning rolls around and they go, do we really have to go to church? Do we really have to go? And yet what we see here in the scripture is God breaks in without anyone's plans. God breaks in without anyone saying, this is how God is going to work. After 400 years, here comes the clock. The, the countdown is going 100 years. People are doing all sorts of stuff. 200 years. 300 years. The clock is still counting. Where's God? What's he doing? Well, he's working in the ordinary. We know that he's still working through providence because he works through everything. He's ordained everything and he's causing it to happen in space and in time. But all of a sudden, at the appointed moment, God shows up. I could tell you stories in my life and perhaps you've had the same encounters in your life. Where oftentimes God works in your life in the most profound and powerful and unusual way when you least expect it. Oftentimes we're saying, God, will you do it on this day or this month and nothing happens? And we're saying, God, where are you? And then at the moment when we least expect it, then God shows up and God acts in power. Why? Because he's sovereign and he has life in himself and he doesn't need us. And there's something so beautiful about this that after 400 years of silence, all of a sudden the scripture says, John appeared. And there needs to be a heart cry within us that says, Lord, we thank you for the way that you have moved in the everyday. Lord, we look back at the way that you have moved in our life over and over again. Lord, you have helped us pay our bills week after week. God, you've always put bread on the table. We thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for answered prayers week after week, month after month. God, there's no one like you. You are truly a protection and a shelter to those who trust in you. Lord, thank you. But we need to go beyond just that kind of praying to saying, Lord, please move in power. In your timing and in your way, Lord, we need you. Lord, we're desperate without you. And God, this isn't going to just work if this is all that happens for the next 50 or 60 years. God, we need a fresh awakening. Lord, we need a new movement like what happened with George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley. Lord, we need a movement. God, you need to do again what you did in the Welsh Revival. God, we thank you for the ordinary way that you work in Providence. But God, we desperately need revival. Your people are dying. Kids are coming up. They don't know your power. Lord, we recognize the fact that you're working in the ordinary. We recognize, oh Lord, that you're working in the everyday. But Lord, we need power. We need revival. God, we need to see people streaming through these doors, not because of a festival, not because of a bazaar, not because we're having a great hot dog meal. But Lord, what we need is people who are actually excited about you. 
And God, we pray, and we're praying with expectancy that even though we recognize you work in your way at your time because you're sovereign, God, we believe because we've seen in history over and over and over again that you also break in in this powerful way and wake your people up to the fact that you're still at work. This is the heart cry of a person who loves the Lord. On their knees, at home, saying, God, we need something more. And if you remember Simeon that was just talked about, he had been waiting his whole life. And finally, he holds Jesus in his arms and he says, now, now I can die. Because what I've been waiting for, what I've been praying for, what Anna had been praying for, not for just a few years, not just going to prayer meeting for a month and then just saying, well, nothing worked out, praying over 80 years. Lord, come. Come in great power. Now the question is, who is this John? We know that he, according to the scripture, says that he all of a sudden uh, simply appears. But let's go to Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, we see who he is. In Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Luke chapter 1, verse 5, it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Does this remind you of Abraham and Sarah? Here are two people that are simply waiting. They're old. They're advanced in years. She's thinking, my days of pregnancy are far behind me. I remember ministering at the nursing homes in our first church, and it was always stories like this that were a hit because you would talk to these elderly ladies who were sitting there listening, and you would say to them, now, can you imagine at 70, 80, 90 years old getting pregnant? And, of course, they'd say, that's not going to happen. And that's the sense that we get here. This is, this is just something that's not going to happen. They're advanced in years. And in verse 8, it says, Now while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside of the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. He's going in, he's praying, and all of a sudden an angel shows up. This is Zacharias. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and he fell upon him. Then fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And the reason we talk about this John is because this is the John that we're looking at in Mark chapter 1. John appeared. This is this is him, this is John, and by the way, we, we don't want to get confused. This is not John the Apostle. There are different Johns in the, in the New Testament. This is not John the Apostle, but 
This is a different John. We'll talk about who he is in just a moment. And so the angel says, your, your prayer has been heard. You shall call his name John, verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. For he will be great before the Lord. He will be filled, it says there, with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Verse 16, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So this is John the Baptist. And this angel says, this man, this child who your wife is going to have at an advanced age, he's going to be the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4 that we just looked at. And his main mission is going to be to prepare the way of the Lord. His message is going to be the Messiah is coming. This John is going to grow up and he's going to say, clear the road, make level the path. The Messiah, as we saw, Jesus, Yeshua, the anointed one is coming. And one of the things that is going to happen as a result of his ministry is he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children back to their fathers. In other words, as people get right with the Lord, not only are they going to get right with him, but in their own home life, they're also going to get right with each other. Where there's been broken relationships between fathers and sons, between sons and fathers, between fathers and daughters, and vice versa. This one is going to come and he's going to have a message of reconciliation. You know, there couldn't be a more appropriate verse than to talk about this on Father's Day. That the primary way that we know God is as our Father, our Father who art in heaven. He's a loving father and cares about his children. He has relationships with us based upon peace and based upon love. There is nothing like the tenderness and the warmth and the caring of a strong, godly father. And if there's anything that we need in our country, it's the hearts of the fathers to be turned back to their children. For fathers to say, my greatest mission in life is not my career. My greatest mission in life is not chasing women. My greatest mission in life is not hanging out at the bar on Friday and Saturday nights with, with my guy friends, just telling guy stories and guy jokes. Well, mom's at home with the children. That's wife and children type of things. Oh, no, it's not. Listen. The greatest thing in our life that men have been given, that fathers have been given, is their wife and their children. There's nothing greater in this life, aside from knowing Jesus Christ, there's no greater relationship. There's no greater intimate relationship than a father and his child, a husband and his wife, family.
The Lord wants to bring fathers back. He wants them to pour into their kids' lives. Say, I love you. I love you. And maybe that's what needs to happen in some relationships here in, in this room. Where God's speaking to your heart and he's saying to your heart, there's some things that need to be worked out between you and your children. Or perhaps you're a child here and you're saying, there's something that I need to work out with my dad. And we need to sit down, we need to have a talk. And we need to make sure that we understand how important this relationship is. In this church, what the desire is to build is not just a wonderful church with people who come in on Sunday morning, but it's strong families where men are protectors and providers, the leaders of their home, and where they recognize that one of their greatest callings in life, their ministry, is not their career. It's not what goes on outside of the home. But they should lay awake at night saying, Lord, how can I minister to my family? Lord, how can I teach the little ones that Jesus Christ is Lord? Lord, it's one thing to provide for them four walls, but God, I'm asking you that you would provide through me much more than that. That God, through, through the Father, you would provide a man who is someone who is absolutely dedicated to you. That's the goal. And that's what he says the ministry of John would be. If you go to Luke 1 again, verse 24, uh, we see that Elizabeth, in verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. And now there's and some verses about Mary and the fact that Mary is also going to have a child. Of course, we know that that's going to be the Lord. Mary was a virgin. Elizabeth was not. And God, through the angel, speaks to Mary in verse 36 of chapter 1. And he says, and behold, your relative Elizabeth. Now we know that Elizabeth came from the line of Aaron. And Jesus would come from the line of David. So they must have been related somehow through their mother's side, their mother's mother, Elizabeth's mother, Mary's mother, because their lineage came from the father, from Aaron and uh, David with Jesus. And so obviously uh, John was uh, related to Jesus. We're not exactly sure. Some people have said that he was his first cousin. We simply don't know that. We just simply know that he was related Look at verse 36, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was also called barren. And so now Elizabeth and Mary meet, and in verse 41 it says, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, just as was prophesied, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you keep going, we're going to keep going here in, in, chapter, in chapter 1. If you go now over to verse 76, this is the father's prophetic word once the child is born. And uh, speaking of John, he says this, verse 76, chapter 1. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. 
for you, that is, John will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Here it is, verse 79. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So just as we've been talking about, Israel was in this dark time, and yet John would be raised to pierce that darkness. The sun was beginning to rise in Israel, and this one would come and would begin to prepare the way of the Lord, this relative of Jesus. Now, if you go back to Mark 1, I'm going to notice a few things here. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. So here he is. John has now grown up. This is John the Baptist. And he's preaching a message of repentance. In fact, uh, this is where we get to John the Baptist because he is the one who's dipping or he's the one who's immersing people in water. Uh, the scripture does not teach sprinkling where someone is sprinkled. The actual word here means to dip or to immerse. And when a person would come to him, he wasn't simply immersing them and saying, okay, because you've been baptized, now you're forgiven of your sins. In fact, we've said this many times, but you can be dipped in the water a thousand times. You can be immersed in holy water straight from the River Jordan and still not know Christ. But this is the kind of baptism. This is a description of the kind of baptism that John was participating in. And what he was doing was, is he was preaching a message of repentance. He was preaching about the people's sins. Far from being a seeker-sensitive preacher, a preacher that is simply preaching messages to tickle people's ears. In the 90s and even into the 2000s, it was popular to build churches simply based upon people's felt needs. Well, we want people to come to church, so we need to think, we need to form committees, and we need to think about how are we going to get people into church. And so, of course, we want to make sure that the church is cool, and all of these things are good. We want to make sure that it's warm during the winter. We want to make sure that it's comfortable and all these different things. But one of the problems with this, with this movement was that oftentimes the hard messages that are found in the scriptures were beginning to be left out. We had the thermostat right, we had chairs that were comfortable, we had all these different things, and unfortunately the messages were also getting too comfortable. And so John comes here, and instead of just giving a comfortable message, the scripture is very clear that John came and he was actually preaching about sin. He was preaching about sin. 
He wasn't just giving messages that tickled the ears, but he was giving a message that dealt with what was going on in people's lives. And he was calling people to repentance. He was calling people to confess their sins and admit that they needed to be forgiven and that they needed a savior. And as a result of that, as a symbol of that, they then would be baptized in water. It wasn't the water that was saving them, but it was a symbol of what had already taken place, and that was that they had repented of their sins. And the message hasn't changed today. If people are going to be right with God, if people are going to know God, listen carefully, then the only way to know God is through repentance of our sins. And uh, maybe you're sitting here and you're going, well, I, uh, I've been going to church my whole life, but I've really never known God and I've never really repented of my sins. It's something here that John was actually preaching to Jews. The Jews actually didn't get baptized. In fact, the only time that they would baptize is they would baptize Gentile converts who would become Jews proselyte baptism, they would baptize them in water. And a person would say, okay, I'm no longer identifying with whatever pagan religion I've been a part of. I'm now being baptized and I'm becoming a Jew. But to actually call Jews to repentance who did all the rituals and who were part of the ceremonies was almost unthinkable. What John was doing was he was saying, you have the religion. You've been doing all sorts of different religious things. But the truth is, you actually need to go beyond the rituals. You need to go beyond just the ceremony of things. And you actually need to repent and get right with God. And there's people who have been raised in church their whole life or have been a part of a Catholic church or part of a Protestant church. And they have heard the religious things their whole life. And if you would talk to them, they would say, oh, yes, I was baptized as a child. I've gone to church my whole life. I've participated in catechism. But the message of forgiveness is audacious because it's saying that we actually need to be forgiven of our sins. And that's the question to you this morning is not have you been a religious person your whole life. If there was ever a religious group of people, it was the Jews. The question was, the message that was being preached was to religious people. In fact, Jesus said, I did not come for the righteous. He said, but I've come for those who are sick, those who are needy. And there must come a point in our life where we say, you know what? I might have been religious, but I've never been forgiven of my sins. I've never repented. I've never believed. Martin Luther says this, he says, where Christ is, there he always goes against the flow. When Christ comes and preaches, when John the Baptist preaches, he's always preaching, they are always preaching, a message that goes against the flow of the culture. Can I just ask you a question this morning? 
you might have everyone around you thinking you're a Christian. You might have done all the things, and, and for you to actually think of confessing your sins and repenting and being baptized, in your heart you go, you know what, I, I need to do that. I really need to repent. And maybe this morning you've walked in and your sins in your life have been hanging over your head. There's been this weight, this burden that you've been carrying around. You've been, you've been weighed down underneath the weight of religion. And maybe you say, I'm too embarrassed. You know, if people knew that I've never really gotten right with God, I've never really confessed my sins. I've been okay on the outside. I've been looking good on, on the outside, but I've never really confessed my sins before the Lord. The Lord is calling to you this morning to humble yourself before it's too late. Jesus said this, he said, if you will deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. If you will acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before my Father who is in heaven. And so you can see all these Jews come into the place, they're coming, they're saying, I'm Presbyterian. I'm, I'm Methodist, I'm Pentecostal, I'm Baptist. They're all coming to the, to, the, to the river. And John is saying, you've got all the religion in order. You've got all the religious things down. You've got the deeds down. You've, you've got the ceremony down. You've got the rituals down. You've got all of this down. And many of them are standing there with their arms crossed. I'm religious. I know who I am. I know that I've been raised in a church. And yet John is calling to these religious people and he's saying, yes, you're religious, but have you ever really humbled yourself and have you ever really repented of your sins? That's the question. And that's the question he's calling all of us today. And when we repent, and to repent means to have a change of heart. We say, I recognize I've been walking in this direction. I've been living this life. I've been doing this stuff that I know is not right. And all of a sudden the heart gets convicted and the heart says, I'm turning around and I'm turning toward God. Repentance, the Bible says, toward God in Acts and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm turning from my sin and all of the religion. I give up on all sorts of religious ceremonies. I love what Dr. Uh, uh, Leonard Ravenhill used to say. He used to say, you can have 32 degrees and still be frozen. You can have all sorts of religious degrees. You can know the Bible inside and out. But repentance is a change of heart. And because of Christ, when we come to him and when we say, Lord, I, I repent to you. Lord, this message has been convicting one of repentance and one of faith. But Lord, when I come to you in repentance, the Bible says that that weight, that burden of guilt, that burden of shame is taken off. And a person is released 
they're released. Fear goes away. Anxiety goes away. The fear of hell leaves. And all of a sudden, there's a sense we can be forgiven. We can be forgiven. The message of repentance is not hard for hard's sake. It's hard so that we might know Christ. So that we might know Christ. There's nothing greater on Father's Day than to come back to the Father. The message of repentance. Where are you at today? Where are you at today? Why don't you stand with me as we close? Would you bow your heads with me and